All right, thank you, Robin and Cindy. Um, my name's Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown. Uh, if you're new and you're like, who are you? Um, I've been on sabbatical. I'm on sabbatical during the month of July. So um, I'm thankful. It's a, it's a month of just kind of rest and renewal. And I'm thankful uh, for a church that values uh, that for our pastors. And so uh, thank you for granting that time. It's been great for my family and I. And it's great to be back and worshiping this morning. But I'm, I'm only here, so I'm not working. So you didn't see me on stage today. Uh, but I'm only here to uh, introduce to you a friend of mine who's going to be teaching this morning. So uh, about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I had the opportunity to meet John Stark. Um, we are part of a network of churches known as Sojourn Network that's spread across the country, about 75 churches, mostly in urban areas. And we partner together to do uh, social justice together, to plant churches, um, to just uh, do things that we can't individually do by ourselves. And so it's a really sweet opportunity to not only partner together, but just be in relationship with a diverse group of pastors and their wives and other ministry leaders. And so I met John through this, and we've become good friends over the last couple of years. And so uh, John and his wife, Jenna, serve, uh, John's the lead pastor at Apostles Church in New York City. Um, and, uh, and just a lot of things I could say about John, he's an accomplished author, writer. We had the opportunity to collaborate on a book recently for pastors. It was just a lot of fun. Um, he's got a book coming out here in the next some time, period of time on prayer, uh, written for just kind of the ordinary person, so I'm excited about that. Uh, John is also a father. He has four kids that he's raising in the middle of Manhattan there, um, and just, just beautiful children. Uh, he's a great father, great husband. But I think most importantly, um, for your sake, is he is, for me, just has been a great friend and an encourager, and it's just a genuine, godly man who loves Jesus and loves the church. And so I'm thankful, John, that you would come and spend time teaching. Uh, he's also a great teacher. I think he'd be blessed this morning. So he's going to be in our formation series teaching us on uh, meditation of Scripture and the importance of meditation in helping us uh, experience transformation. So I'm going to be reading uh, his text here, Psalm 77. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't own a Bible, um, this blue and white one should be around you somewhere or a blue copy around you. And my copy here, it's page 313. So if you want to turn there and listen, and then John will come and, and uh, teach us from, from this passage. Psalm 77, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. And I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great, like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. 
When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, am I on? Can you hear me? Yeah, good. Good morning. Uh, my name is John, as Brandon said. It's really sweet to be here. You guys are heroes. I don't know if you know that, but you, you are. We, we really love Soma Church in New York. We, uh, we pray for you regularly. I don't just, I mean that. We really do. We say you by name, say your pastor's name by name in our services, and we pray for you. And I mentioned to a few friends that uh, I was going to preach in a church in Indianapolis. They said, well, Soma. And so they, they knew, they know you. They're excited that they got to send me down and, and be with you. I was really thankful to spend some time here. Um, I love your pastors. Uh, your pastors are good friends. Josh Daly actually spent a few years with me in New York. I don't know if you know that. He um, partnered together. We had a lot of really early mornings with really bad coffee at European Cafe together. And since he's left, I drink a lot better coffee. But um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, it's really sweet to be with you, and I'm really thankful for, for Soma. You guys are in your formation series, and I was asked to, to preach on meditation on Scripture. And so when we think about meditation on Scripture, this is not an impersonal exercise. This is uh, a seeking, uh, a relational exercise with God. Psalm 34 is talking about something similar. It says, those who seek the Lord are radiant you know these people, these radiant people? Um, those who seek the Lord are radiant. This language of radiance or this language of seeking in the Hebrew is this a relational term. It's this face-to-face -face conversation. Ronald Rollheiser in his book, uh, Sacred Fire, he says, prayer and meditation is the act of getting close enough to God to hear him say, I love you. Do you think about prayer like that? Prayer and meditation on Scripture, reading the Bible, is, is the effort, the act of getting close enough to God to hear Him say, I, I love you. Well, how do you, Psalm 77 shows us, how do you actually do that in real life? In your anxious days, in your worry, in your trouble, in your pain, how do you, how do you get close enough to God to hear Him say, I, I love you? Psalm 77 is, is split up into two parts that couldn't be more different. I don't know if you noticed that. Did you notice that in the reading? Verses 1 through 10 is dark poetry. It's troubling, right? There's complaint, there's discouragement, there's hopelessness, there, there's emotional and spiritual exhaustion. I, I wonder if you know what that's like. I, I wonder maybe just even right now, you're just I'm kind of ringing your bell right now just distant from God, feeling abandoned by God. The psalmist says he's, he's refusing to be comforted. But then there's this change in verses 11 through 20. There's praise. There's, there's confidence. There's 
joy, there's hope. In fact, verses 13 through 15, there's this intense praise and, and worship. Something has changed. Now, the question is that Psalm 77 is helping us see how do you go from one experience to the other? How do you, how do you experience verse 9 where it says, has God forgotten to be gracious? That's a weird question, isn't it? Has God forgotten to be gracious? To go to verse 13 through 15, that you are the God of wonders. Who is like you, O oh God? How do you change? Have you, have you ever wondered, just being confused in yourself, it's like, why can't I change? Maybe not even just emotionally like this psalm, but just any number of things. You're just frustrated with your behavior. Why can't I go from this behavior to transformation? Why, why do I keep falling into this? Why can't I be different? Why, why do I keep doing the same thing over and over again? Is anyone else? I'm, am I the only one that's confused at themselves? I mean, it's encouraging in Romans 7 for Paul to, to say things like this. I don't know why I do the things that I do. I, don't, I, I want to do different things, but the things I want to do, I don't. It's so encouraging that the Apostle Paul has that problem. It's not just me. But yeah, how, do you, how do you make this change? There seems to be this gap, right? This gap between how you know you ought to live and how you actually live. Uh, this gap between what you know to be true about God, yourself, and this world, and what you actually, how you actually live. There's this gap, and that gap can be discouraging. So how do you close the gap? How do you close the gap between how you know you ought to live and how you actually live? How you, what you know to be true about God and what you experience in this world. How do you close the gap? How do you make that change? And the psalmist shows that it begins with meditation. Did you expect something more clever than that? It begins with this slow, unhurried time meditating on Scripture. Because meditation, meditating on Scripture is not the habit of, of knowing more. Meditating on Scripture is the habit of becoming more. You're becoming something different. And so Psalm 77 just shows us a few pathways of how do you go from the experience of verses 1 through 10 to the verses 11 through 20 to that experience. And the first one, it's pretty simple. The first pathway is, is to pray with an honest heart, to come to Scripture, meditating on Scripture with an honest heart. It's, a per, it's important to recognize that every prayer has a context, whether you pray this morning or you're going to pray tomorrow, whenever you pray, every prayer is embodied, it's enfleshed. It came from a day yesterday where all of your troubles and worries and pain from yesterday, it's got the worries and anxieties and dread of the day ahead, or it's got the excitements of what's ahead, the joys of from yesterday. It's filled with experiences. And here in Psalm 77, there is this lived experience, and what comes out is complaint. What comes out is anger and frustration and hopelessness, and it's primarily, these emotions are primarily aimed at God. That's surprising. Did you notice that? In other words, he, he doesn't just come with a sort of buttoned-up prayer life where he knows all the theological words to say and he knows how to present himself. He comes with an honesty of the heart. Now, I just want to caution us just for a moment um, 
When we read Psalm 77, we may say something like, man, he's really, he's really authentic. And that's true. But there is a kind of uh, a modern version of authenticity. Authenticity. Charles Taylor says this is the authentic age where we love authenticity. We love our leaders to be raw. We love all of our, when, the, when our uh, favorite movie stars put how messy their house is in real life. They're like, oh, they're so raw. They're so real. They're just like me, right? We, we love this kind of authenticity. But what this authenticity is, is oftentimes a kind of safe honesty that is authentic in order to just to be affirmed. It's a sort of honesty on our own terms. And what's a little bit different is the New Testament version of this, and we might not call it authenticity, we might call it actually looks, looks more like vulnerability. Where authenticity says, here I am, and you just have to take me as I am. Vulnerability says, here I am, you're going to need to change me. You're going to need to transform me. Authenticity kind of looks a little bit like pride. Vulnerability looks a little bit like repentance. So here's what this psalmist is doing, what Asaph is doing. He's coming with not just authenticity, but real vulnerability. There's an honesty of the heart. David Benner, he has a great little book. Uh, Brandon and I were talking about it. It's called The Gift of Being Yourself. It's, It's about 115 pages. It's super short, and it's a great book. He says, knowing God means to put yourself in the position of receiving his love and to truly know this love, to truly know God's love, we must receive it in an undefended state. We must receive God's love in an undefended state, to, to, in a vulnerability of a just I am encounter. Do you know how to receive God's love? in an undefended state. I don't know if we know how to really receive anything in an undefended state. We're always, I don't know if there's anyone here right now who's in an undefended state. We got our defenses up, right? We have our walls up. We have our armor on. We we, we don't want to be seen. We don't want to be truly known because we're, we're fearful of if anyone were to truly know who I am, they wouldn't love me anymore. But here's the promise of Psalm 77 is that God can truly know you all the way down to the bottom and love each of the skies. You could just be yourself and be loved. Isn't that amazing? Don't you, I mean, don't you want that? Don't you need that every morning? Just to have one experience a day where you are truly known, you can be yourself and be loved. I mean, let's be honest, if you knew every dark thought that I have, I don't know, once a day, you would probably all leave screaming. So we put our guards up. We know that reaction. We know that response. But here's God inviting us into a vulnerable state of, listen, receive my love in an undefended way. Come vulnerable. Come open. So the psalmist is honest. We don't know exactly what he's going through. It's pretty troubling. It seems pretty dark. Um, but we, we don't need to know what he's going through. We probably have common experience. He's going through extremely different circumstances without any sense that God cares for him. 
In fact, he's very honest that he sees God as the origin of his problems. I don't know if you saw that. He's, he lays all this at his feet. He says in verse 3, he says, when I remember God, I moan. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that to anyone else? When I think about you, oh my gosh, it just makes me like groan. That's not nice. This is not a nice prayer. When I think of you, O oh God, I groan. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I can't sleep, and it's your fault. <laughs> Verses 5 through 6, he's remembering the times where they used to be good. And he has no idea why that's changed, why things are so bad. And then he begins to ask him very serious questions about God's character. And these aren't throwaway words. He says in verse 6, he says, I did a diligent search. In other words, I did a lot of thought. I've considered my circumstances. And I've thought about this. And I, want, I, I need you to answer my questions, Lord. Are, are you going to spurn forever? In other words, are you just going to be gone? Are you never again going to be favorable? Have your steadfast love has, it, have your, has your love ceased? Are, you, are, you, are your promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Can you just, that's a, that's a powerful question. Have you forgotten how to be gracious? Has your anger shut up your compassion? In other words, he's asking, has God changed? Is he different now? Now, I'm wondering what you're thinking. Certainly, this is hyperbole, right? This is a, an inspired author of an inspired psalm. Certainly, this must have been edited out, right? I mean, certainly, ver- words like this ought to disqualify someone from writing any more of the Bible, right? Go take a walk, my man. Come back when you've had a cup of coffee, cool down, and we'll consider your job description going forward after this, right? I mean, he seems like he just kind of needs to chill. But here, listen, these are real questions. If you've gone through real pain, if you've suffered, if you've gone through despair, maybe like a long season of just depression, you know that these questions come to the surface. If you're like 24 and every door is always open for you and life is just wonderful and you have no idea what this is talking about, this is coming, right? (laughs) Things change. And it's good news for you to know that Psalm 77 exists. And it's good news for those of us who've gone through pain, we've suffered, we've struggled with depression, darkness has come. It's good news to know that we have Psalm 77. Because here's the powerful truth, here's the comforting truth, is that if you believe the Bible to be what it claims to be, that it's God's word for you, that these, these words of doubt, these words of anger at God, these words of discouragement, these words were inspired by God for you. Can you believe that? God wrote these words down. For you. They're meant to be prayed. They're meant to be sung. These are, these are hymns. God is not so insecure that you can't say these things to him. He can handle it. He wrote this down. This, this psalm teaches us that God knows what it means for you and I to go to despair. He knows how men get when we go to despair. 
When we don't have words to say, He gives us words to say. And you know why He knows probably better than anyone else? Because his, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, said words like these on the cross. I mean, doesn't it sound familiar? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if the Son of God needed these kinds of words, that was a psalm, right? That's Psalm 22. He's quoting the psalms when he's suffering. If the Son of God needs the psalms when he's suffering, how much more do you need the psalms when you're suffering? So these are for us. So here's the principle, is that you, you need to come with an honest heart to God in order to let God heal your heart, because here's what God is doing. He's bringing these emotions that we're feeling, whether we'd like to admit it or not, we're feeling anger and guilt and shame and fear. And what we do as good Christians, if you've been a Christian for a while, we know how to button that up and stuff it down and say the right words. But God says in Psalm 77, hey, bring those up so I can heal it. Because if you're going to stuff those emotions down, they're just going to govern your behavior without you knowing it, just subconsciously. God wants you to bring them to the surface so that he can heal your shame, heal your fear, heal your, your pain. The second pathway, so the first pathway is to have an honesty of the heart when you pray. Not a buttoned-up prayer life, but an honesty, a real relationship when you come to prayer. The second pathway is this intentional remembering. There's this turn in, in verse 10. He says, he says, I will appeal to this. So he's, he's been appealing to the emotions that his circumstances have produced. He's, he's, he's appealing to his experience. This, this is what it feels like right now. This is what it seems like right now. And now he's doing a turn. He's, he's looked at that data. He's giving dignity to that data. Now he's looking at other data. He says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. The right hand is always an image of power. So he's appealing to the years of God's power. What does that mean? He's appealing to God's history. How has God acted in history with his people? Verse 11 says, he remembering, he's remembering the deeds of the Lord, the wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. That's important here. There's, there's four verbs here. He says, I will I will appeal, I will remember, I will ponder, I will meditate. And these verbs, in the Hebrew, there's this little vowel at the end of each verb that turns them into hortatory verbs. Did I just get you excited? Get a little bit of Hebrew grammar, right, in, in the morning? You invite me to all your parties, the people who talk about Hebrew grammar, right? Um, it turns, and this is important, it turns them into hortatory verbs, which, which means there's just an, an intensity of action. There's an intensity of, of attitude. I will remember. I will ponder. I will meditate. I will appeal. This isn't, meditating on Scripture is not just as passive exercise to find rest for your soul. It comes that way, but not without going through this intensive action of pondering and remembering and meditating and appealing. This is fighting for joy. This is reaching for delight. I'm going to appeal to something greater than just my circumstances because there isn't life here right now. I'm going to life. 
I'm seeking God. And what is Psalm 34? We've already said it. Those who seek God become radiant. It's holding on to that promise. This is an important move because he's not ignoring his emotions that the circumstances have produced because he doesn't want to be governed by his emotions. He wants to bring that to the surface. But he's also considering other data. What has God done? And so he's remembering. He's remembering to call to mind. This isn't sort of you know, the psalmist is not saying, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. God is gracious. I forgot. No, he knows. He's written famous psalms. He, he's a good theologian, but he's reminding his heart. He's preaching to his heart. He's reminding himself of God's stories of great power and the story that he just goes back to where his, like, imagination leans into is the story of the Exodus. The parting of the sea. Did you see that in the imagery? The parting of the sea, that's the Red Sea where God led the people for, to safety, out of deliverance or out of slavery, into a delivered state, into freedom, on the way to the promised land. This is where his identity is formed. This is where his salvation was. It's the place where God made him their people. It's the stories of God's right hand and his power. It's this intentional remembering. Yes, this is who God is. Do you have some sort of habit of, of intentional remembrance? Do you know what I'm talking about? I have this place in my journal every morning where I try to pray and I try to intentionally remember yesterday because I don't have a really good memory. <laughs> yesterday, what was God doing yesterday? How was he present? How did he encourage me? How did, where did he bear fruit? Where was he working? Just so I can be awake to what God is doing, how much of us are just asleep. So sometimes we don't even know what to be thankful for, for how God is sustaining and present and encouraging and using the Spirit and using community. It's, it's an intentional way of daily for me to remind myself what God is doing. So every Thursday night, our family, we have a feast together. We have a feast. We have our favorite foods, favorite drinks, and we talk, we tell stories, we try to laugh and have fun, and we, and we say to one another what we've been thankful for over the last week. And there's six of us, and there's a few teenagers, so we talk a lot. And so we try to keep it and limit it down, but I have my list where I'm remembering the stories of God's right hand in the last week. And here, this is what he's doing. He's, he's considering God's right hand of power in his life and the life of his people. And then he moves to pondering. Pondering is important. Don't move past that word. Pondering is, is to draw out the significance of the things that you are remembering. Pondering is significantly more important than amazement. Because if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you had some great, amazing Christian experiences. Maybe you had like a few worship experiences in college, or and you, maybe you were in some college ministry and you experienced God's weighty presence, and it was amazing. And now you're like 34 and nothing in your life is amazing right now. And you're sort of wondering, where, where is God in this? You all are much quieter this morning, so maybe you're feeling that a little bit now. Uh, you're, you're no longer experiencing this amazement, but the Bible actually is pretty skeptical of, of people who just experience amazement. In the Gospels, you have tons of stories where the crowds were amazed at Jesus. 
They were amazed at his miracles. They gave glory to him. They bowed down to him when he came into the city on a donkey, right? And they were they're calling him their king. And then three days later, they crucified him. You need something deeper than amazement. Ronald Rollheiser mentioning him again in, in his book, uh, Sacred Fire. He says, amazement lies at the root of hype, ideology, groupthink, mob mentality, gang rapes, and crucifixions. To ponder, though, to ponder biblically is the opposite of this. We ponder when we do not let the energy of a crowd or a spontaneous emotion simply flow through us and become the basis of our actions. Instead, we ponder. You know who's a hero of pondering is Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? She went through amazing experiences, right? She gave birth to the Son of God. That's pretty amazing. She had the star of Bethlehem leading kings of of other Gentile nations. Pretty amazing. She had all these angel stories from from shepherds. It's pretty amazing. But what what does it say that she did? He doesn't say, Mary cried out. That was amazing, right? What does it say? Do you know? She pondered this in her heart. Some translations say uh, she treasured this in her heart, and that's fine. It kind of gives this nostalgic feel, like she didn't have Instagram back then, so she's like, oh, I need to ponder this and treasure it, keep so I can remember it. But no, there's this something deeper than just nostalgia. She's, she's not letting these experiences just flow through them and just waiting for what's next but pondering these experiences, pondering of the power of God's right hand in her life so that it changes her. It doesn't just move through her. She's not a reactionary person. She's a pondering person. And for Psalm 77, he's pondering the Exodus story. He's not just amazed at the parting of the sea. That is amazing. But he's pondering now. He considers He thinks, he's asking questions. What does the story say about God? What does the story say about me? And if he's pondering, let's do this exercise for a second. If he's pondering the Exodus as an Israelite, what would he say? What would he say? Say something like, I was once enslaved, sentenced to death, but the Lord delivered me. He set me free, calls me his son. But I can't be arrogant because I wasn't very holy. I wasn't better than anyone else. It was simply by grace. It was through the blood of the lamb, right? Something else had to die for me. Something else had to take my death, my punishments, only by grace. And God worked so many wonders. He parted the sea. I went through the waters, on through dry through dry land, through the other side, and now we're, we're, we're going to a new home. We're going to a new land, and we're traveling, and I sometimes want to go back to slavery, but God keeps me there. And we're going to go to a new home where he's going to be our Lord, and I'm going to be his people. Now, you know, if you're a Christian, you can almost say the exact same thing, couldn't you? Right? I was once enslaved to sin, sentenced to death. By, he, by his grace, he, he saved me. Can't be arrogant. It wasn't me. It's by grace, through the blood of the Lamb. And he, 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 he held me, walk, he, he spread the waters of judgment, and I walked on dry land, and I'm on my way to a new home. Sometimes I want to go back to slavery. Sometimes it's a lot easier. 
but he keeps me safe. He keeps me with his presence, and someday we're going to be home with the Lord. Well, he will be our Lord, and we will be his people. That's our story. That's pondering. Do you, do you know how to pray like that? Do you know how to put yourself in the stories of Scripture and ponder it like that? I mean, do you remember the story in Mark 15 where um, the soldier watched Jesus die? And he, he nailed him to the cross, and he breathed his last, cried out, and darkness came over the land. The earth shook, and the temple, the curtain torn, and the Holy of Holies was exposed. And, and he watched Jesus die, and he said, do you remember what he says? Surely this is the Son of God. The experience of watching Jesus died provoked faith and worship. That's amazing. But can you imagine the guilt Almost the immediate sense of guilt. You've just killed the Son of God. You were the one who whipped and didn't stop when it broke the flesh. You were the one who hammered the nails. You were the one who gambled for his clothes. What hope do you have? You probably imagine, it's like, there's probably a special place in hell for me. The only hope that you have is that if he's, he's not just the Son of God that you crucify, he's also the Lamb of God who takes away sins. Now listen, do you know how to ponder that message? Do you know how to meditate on that passage? Are you ready? You are the soldier. Happy Sunday. Are you encouraged? <laughs> right? You didn't nail the nails, but your sin was what nailed him there, right? What hope do you have? The only hope that you have, he's not just the son of God who was killed by your sins. He's the Lamb of God who covers your sins. What, what kind of hope do you have? Is, is that you have to put yourself in the stories of the Scriptures. Do you, do you know when you see the, the Lamb of God dying for you on the cross that He split the seas of sin and death so that you could walk through on the promised land? He spilled His blood so that the darkness of death would pass over. He was the firstborn, the only son who wouldn't make it through the night. He was slaughtered so that you could go free and be adopted as sons and daughters. Do you know how to read the Bible that way, right? Do, do you know how, when you read the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, right, that you're not the Good Samaritan? When you read that passage, you're not to be the one on a shining white horse saving the day. You're the man in the ditch hoping someone will come along and heal you. When you read the story of Matthew when Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, your first move to meditate on that passage is not, all right, I need to eat with people who are outside of my comfort zone like Jesus is. No, no, no. You're not the hero of the passage. The, the, your point in that passage is you need to put yourself in the way of being the person with whom Jesus befriends. You're not the hero of the story. You don't read the Bible first trying to do everything that Jesus did. Your first move is how do I put myself in the way to receive everything that Jesus offers? At some point, you'll need to walk towards imitation of Christ. You'll need to be Christ-like. But you can't do that if you haven't received everything that Christ has offered yet. The first move of meditating on Scripture is not, how do I do everything that Jesus did, but how do I put myself in the way to receive everything that Jesus offers? What the psalmist is imploring you to do is to let that and a thousand 
other passages in the Bible sink into your heart to see the power of God on your behalf, to see how Christ brings healing, to see how Christ brings comfort, to see how God takes away your shame, heals your guilt, calms your fears. Let it lead you to praise. Let it lead you to wonder. Let it lead you to confidence and strength. Meditation is the discipline that lights the fuse between the understanding of the mind and the tasting of the heart. It's not, right, meditation on Scripture is not to know more, it's to become more. It's the lighting of the fuse between the understanding of the mind and the tasting of the heart. And the easiest way to engage in Scripture, so let's say you take uh, Mark 15, where you see the Son of God is not the one who was just killed by your sin, but He's the Lamb of God who actually takes away your sin. What do you do with that? What do you do with that truth? How do you get that into your heart? How do you pray that truth into your heart. And the easiest way to do it is just to do what Christians have been doing for centuries, is to pray that truth into your heart. Uh, a method that Christians have been using for a long time is called Lecti- Lectio Divinium. And it just does a simple pattern of, okay, how does that passage lead me to adore God? For what, what, what is this passage showing me about him, his character, his greatness, his love, his promises? And when, when you've sort of thought through that and prayed through that, you can ask questions like, what would my life look like if this truth was explosively true in my life? How, how, how would my life look different? And just long for that. What would, how, how, how different would the lives of my neighbors look like if this was explosively true for them? And then long for that. And let it lead you to confession, confession of sin that has kept you from belief, kept you from living this truth. Let it, let it bring to the surface all that needs covering, all that needs healing, all that needs correction. And let it just move to correct, uh, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, where you just, you see all of God's provisions that you have received. You can receive forgiveness and assurance because all of Christ's done. You can give him thanks for how he's been present. If you have a list like me every day where I can look back and see what God has done, you can thank him for those things. And then move to supplication. What do you need to live this truth? What, what do you need where, where, where you are weak and you need his strength, where you're poor and you need his riches, where you're alone and you need his presence? You ask for it. Ask and he answers. Seek and you will find. Knock and he opens the door to you. That's a promise. Do you believe it? Reading the Bible in such a way, listen, the, the whole point of this is, is not to engage your mind only, but it's to get your heart hot. Do you, read the, do you think about reading the Bible that way? Read the Bible in a way that it makes your heart hot. It's, it's seeking to know and remember the presence of God. It's taking your vulnerable, not just your authentic, but your vulnerable and your honest emotions to the truth of God's word in the midst of God's presence. You need both. Take your honest and vulnerable emotions to the truth of God's word in the midst of God's presence. Look, there's a miracle that happens somewhere between verse 9 and verse 13, where there's real despair, real fear, real anger, and it gets transformed into real praise, real joy, real confidence. And you can't produce that joy. You can't produce that miracle 
The only thing you can do, and this is what meditation on Scripture is, is putting yourself in the way of that miracle. It's over, going over and over again, the stories and the passages and the promises and the truths and the beauty, and putting yourselves in the way of that miracle. And that's what God does. And God doesn't just do that with one or two individuals in a church. He actually oftentimes does this corporately. It becomes a culture in a church where that miracle begins to happen corporately. Don't you long for that? I long for that. I long for that for you guys. I long for that for our church. Let's pray.